Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics with occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public service professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Democratic attorney Michael Lieber. Political science professor Scott Hibbert from DePaul University. Conservative commentator Chris Roebling. And Chicago Republican attorney Judith Sherwin. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base at WCGO Radio in beautiful Evanston, Illinois. Our phone lines open at one 800 723-8289-1-800-723-8289. Again, we're live on Facebook. Uh, we are live on YouTube. And again, uh, you can also your, offer your comments uh, uh, through uh, Facebook and uh, YouTube as well. Again, we have another great two hours planned for you this evening, and we're going to begin with uh, one of the major differences of opinion in Washington, D.C., and that is uh, about the commission looking into the activities of January 6th. And the, the Democrats, obviously, they want a full commission. Uh, they've agreed to a bipartisan commission, although it may, may not turn out to be that much. Uh, there are some members of the House, Republicans, who agree with the Democrats, about 35 of them. However, uh, Mitch McConnell, who heads the uh, U.S. Senate, he basically has said it does, he doesn't think it's going to go very far. He thinks we, there's enough uh, ev- uh, investigations going on there at the House and Senate level that we really don't need another commission to look into the actions. Uh, a lot of political observers believe that one of the reasons why the Democrats may want to do this is to keep the subject uh, of uh, what happened on January 6th uh, uh, alive and well as we head into the 2020 congressional elections. So that's sort of the political uh, groundwork that uh, we begin our program this evening. And I want to get a reaction from each of our four guests. And I'm going to begin with our in-studio guests. Uh, I'm going to begin with our Democrat, Mike uh, Lieber. Mike, why is it important that we delve further into what happened on January 6th, in your opinion? It's important because we want to make sure that this doesn't happen again, whether it's uh, people storming the Capitol who are on the right or the left or anywhere in between. It's important to understand why it happened, how we can prevent it, how we can protect the Capitol Police, how we can protect our lawmakers. I think anybody who wants to make sure this doesn't happen again should want this to be investigated. I, and I understand that some Republicans don't want it to be investigated because they think it's going to be politics. But at a certain point, I feel like we have to put politics to the side. And, and, and if Republicans and Democrats together say, look, what happened on January 6th was wrong, it shouldn't happen. Most, of, most everybody said that right away. Uh, and just say, look, this isn't about politics. It's about making sure that this doesn't happen again. Okay. Judith Sherwin, you are our card-carrying Republican, one of those who are here this evening. What is your answer to the same question? Well, my answer to that question is pretty much similar to Mitch McConnell's, which surprises even me. There are a number of investigations going on, not to mention the FBI is still investigating. Um, And you're not going to really learn anything particularly different from this this bipartisan, and I use the word with quotes around it, commission, because it's not going to be very bipartisan. I mean, we know that from the way it's been proposed. We know that from the way it's been talked about. Um, I mean, I heard. And someone, you don't think Mitch, you don't think Mitch McConnell could could level that out with 
being I, the leader of the Senate? No, I really don't. I mean, you have a situation where, where you know, he's he's the leader of 50 people in the Senate, and the 50 people in the Senate are not all that reliable. So, I mean, the one thing that you hear a great deal is the Democrats stick together, the Republicans do not. 35 Republicans in the House, for some reason, think you need to have yet another investigation of what happened on January 6th. I, we I certainly go, don't want it to happen again. But I want to go to our other happen. Republican, uh, Chris Roebling. Chris, uh, is it important that we find out uh, what happened on January 1st? And if so, uh, what's wrong with the commission to look into it? Hit your mute button, uh Sorry, of course, it is important that we learn everything that happened on the 6th of January and the events that led up to it. But that's why these other investigations that are already underway are so vital themselves. And I don't think that there is a voter in America who honestly believes the Democrats in the United States House of Representatives or most of the Democrats in the United States Senate uh, are interested or, or believe that this commission which will not act as a bipartisan commission, I can just guarantee you that right now, um, is going to uncover something, is going to find facts that are not going to be found by the other official investigations that are underway. I also want to point out, I used to work at the Capitol, and what uh, happened was abhorrent, but what the Democrats have done to politicize what happened uh, is equally uh, abhorrent, and, I want, uh, I want to give you an opportunity, Chris, I want to give off. you an opportunity to respond further to that, but I do want to bring Scott Hibbard into our yep. conversation. He's a professor of political science at DePaul University. Welcome back to Beyond the Beltway. It's been a while, Scott. Uh, yeah. Your reaction to uh, how, how important is it that we get to the bottom of what really happened on January 1st, 6th, rather? Um, well, January 6th. Yes. But, uh, yeah, first, um, it's crucial that we get to the bottom of it um, for all the reasons that you know Mike outlined earlier. You know, you don't want to see this happening again. But more to the point, you want to know, understand what you know, what what actually transpired. Um, I'm going to have a slightly di you know, different perspective. That I think you might ex uh, that you might have expected, mm -hmm. and that's like I really don't care if there's a, a January 6th commission. I mean, I, quite frankly, you know, I, I think it would probably be too bipartisan. If you look at the 9/11 commission, it um, many people saw it as kind of a whitewash because it bent over backwards not to use the subpoena power, bent over backwards to accommodate all views. And it didn't, it didn't get to many of the core issues that it should have done. And I really think that, um, you know, if you, wanna, if you want a hardcore investigation, you know, use the subpoena power that the, uh, that's, you know, the judiciary committees have, that the, oversight, the uh, intelligence oversight committees have, that the different house or uh, different committees that oversee the operations of the, um, of the Capitol. Um, and you have a administration uh, that's in Republican hands that would be willing to uh, turn over documents in a way that, you know, you might not have if there was a, uh, um, if there was a Republican in power. So, um, so I think we can get to the bottom of this without a, a commission. And I think actually it was the uh, commission would actually serve Republican interest. Um, and I find it kind of odd. That how would it serve, how would it serve Republican interests if it's bringing up sort of a, a, a black mark on at least the recent history of the, of the party? Well, if you look at what um, uh, Kevin McCarthy asked for in the negotiations, and he's, you know, he's, he wanted uh um, equal number of people on uh, both Democrats and Republicans. You wanted to have um, a, you know, a unanimous vote for any kind of subpoena. You, you wanted it basically empowered the Republican hand in the investigation, and the um, and the Democrats caved on all those issues. And then they were a little taken aback when um, and McCarthy then backed away and said he wasn't going to support it. So, you know, if you if you wanted to have some 
you know, control over the investigation, you know, you would stack, you know, you'd stack the deck in, in, in your favor, which I think the way it was negotiated would have done. And, um, you know, now you're just going to go to the committee structures, which are controlled by Democrats and with subpoena power. So Chris, you know, do, the Repu- so- do the Republicans, uh, do, do they do they lose the high ground on this between now and the 2020 vote? Yeah. Because they appear to be yeah. uh, blocking it. No, yeah, I mean, you Chris. Look at Chris. I mean, I want to. This, this, this is for Chris. Go ahead, Chris. Okay. Fifteen seconds. I don't. I don't think that we lose the high ground because we're as outraged. I myself, personally, you know, on the very day during the event, was calling for these people to be arrested and indicted and tried, and and those who should be convicted. I don't think Republicans have got a thing to worry about. Okay, stand that, by. We, we got to worry about. We got to break. Overlap. Back shortly. Back shortly. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. And Judith, uh, I want to go to you, uh, Judith, and uh, uh, talk about the issue of, of whether or not uh, the Republicans are being hurt by this and will they continue to be hurt by it if we're seeing a, a, a repeat every single day of the attack on the Capitol uh, as part of the television news coverage. And is that just going to keep reminding Republicans, maybe moderate suburban Republicans, what they don't like about the, the the Democratic or the Republican Party under Donald Trump. Uh, I I don't know that. Uh, first of all, I don't know that it's necessarily hurting them. Um, I think the Democrats want it to hurt them, um, and I think that certain moderate uh, Republicans who didn't like Donald Trump to begin with just have another reason not to like him now again. Uh, but but what happened on January 6th, uh, to blame it on Donald Trump, which as far as I could see is the purpose of this commission, at least in its first inception, um, I don't think is correct. I think there were a lot of factors that went into the January 6th riot. Uh, it was outrageous. It never should have happened. And ho- there, there probably were ways to prevent it from happening. And, and you don't believe any, and you don't those, believe and you don't believe that any of the footprints lead back to the president what he said what he did not say what he did or did not do I think that that um if you look at the timeline you look at the rally you look at what was going on um I don't I think the atmosphere is what caused this to happen um he was very clear with his supporters about if going to the Capitol, do it peacefully. 
you know, you was have, he clear about that in your view? Uh, really? In my view, he was very clear about it. There very was well. video that is extremely clear. Okay, there were there were perhaps other speakers who were not as clear, but he was very clear about what he wanted. He did not want to riot. Why would he want to riot? Scott Hibbert has a, a que- is shaking his head as you speak. Scott, yeah, respond. I'm sorry, I just I just got a dissent on this one. That's all right. You know, if you listen to that, if you just go back and listen to the tapes, I mean, he's talking about you know we need to stand up for our country. If you want to take your country back, you're going to take this by force. And Rudy Giuliani had just gotten off the stage talking about a need for a trial by combat. Um, and I can't remember what what uh, Donald Trump Jr. was saying, but it was similarly along those lines. They were they were firing that crowd up. And that crowd then marches down with batons and uh, and poles, flagpoles that are used as battering rams and as weapons and bear spray. I mean, they were ready for uh, for aggression. I need, Scott, I need a question. To Scott, to Scott, That's a question. Right. Uh, uh, you, you disagree on that, but but a point. Do, are you surprised, Scott? And then I want to hear from Michael. Are you surprised that Donald Trump appears to be still very popular? Amongst the vast majority of Republicans, in the wake of uh, the way in which that story uh, was reported, Scott. Yeah, but I think it's also a kind of reflection of how the Republican Party has changed. And I know we've talked about this before, but I come from a, 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 Dem- a Republican uh, Party, a Republican family going way back. But we were Jerry Ford Republicans, and there's been a good migration of a lot of my relatives, you know, out of the Republican Party. Maybe not to the Democratic Party, but they're, they've left the Republican Party, and they would say that the party has, has left them. And the fact that Donald Trump still is this lodestar for you know for the remnants of the party is a sign that um, you know that they're going to be in trouble in, in the next remnant. Uh, you know, and, I, I, and, I, and, I, and, remnants when you're talking. Let me jump in real quick. folks, folks, I promise that Michael's going to go first, and then we're going to go to Chris. Michael, two things in in terms of. What caused January 6th? Let's not forget that Donald Trump said, be there. It's going to be wild. They had speech after speech after speech. And he said, we're going to the Capitol. And and he told people, I want to do whatever I can do to prevent this vote from happening, democracy from happening. Now, why at that moment on January 6th, and actually it did happen for a few days, including um, uh, McCarthy, saying, we reject this. This was wrong. It was their chance to break from Trump. It was their chance to say, this guy lost. It's over. We are going to be a new Republican Party. The problem is they have to get reelected, at least in primaries, by Republican Trumpist voters. And they're too afraid of their voters to say, let's move on from this guy who has lost, who's done. Chris Roebling, your response to that and then back to Judy. I know Scott's a professor, and we have to defer to him in his area of expertise. But I would just like to point out, Jerry Ford got 39 million votes. Donald Trump got more than 70, close to 75 million votes. So when when Scott chooses his word remnant to act like there's just some tattered uh, flag left over after the battle, after the charge of the light brigade, you know, that's that's just politicization of this thing. As for Mike's observation, you know what? Folks who dislike Trump have uh, an encyclopedia of Brit- Britannica of reasons to dislike Trump. Folks who like Trump have their own encyclopedia Britannica for reasons to like him. The point is, we are headed into economic and national insecurity, economic insecurity, national insecurity, 
we're seeing the Democratic Party really unsure of its position with respect to Israel. It's promoting Hamas. It's saying we're going to send money over to uh, Hamas to, quote, rebuild um, Gaza with no new conditions whatsoever. It's deciding, are we going to give $2 billion to the Iranians or $4 billion? So I think the Democrats are scraping around for issues in a desperate attempt to hold the House. And, and that is all that is going on. Everybody, everybody knew with it. I, who worked at the Capitol for four, whatever, four or five years, I can tell you the failure on the 6th of January was in the command structure between, and I will say McConnell and Pelosi, but especially Pelosi, because the Capitol Police work more for the Speaker of the House as the head of the legislative branch than they do for, this is all a Pelosi disaster. And our friends like Scott and Mike have done their best to, to, you know, alchemize it into yet another reason in the Encyclopedia Britannica of Reason. Okay. Scott Hibbert um, responds. So, so, so first of all, I, I will concede to my colleague, Chris, that I should not have used the word remnants. Thank you. Poor choice of words. But the one thing no I, but I will say is, you know, you do have see this really significant fissure within the party. And one of the reasons why Liz Cheney stood up and, and was condemning Donald Trump was because uh, when they were when uh, the House leadership was getting information on the um, upcoming elections or the the next uh, the midterm elections from the uh, Republican uh, National uh, Campaign Committee and the uh, uh, the Senatorial Campaign Committee, they uh, they the people doing the briefings were holding back information about how Donald Trump was going to be a liability in the midterms. And this is why one of the reasons why Liz Cheney felt that she could not, you know, um, you know, sit quietly. So I think you're going to find th these issues going to be much more divisive in the coming uh, uh, in the coming two years. The one thing I, I'll, the last thing I'll say is um, uh, the Democrats don't support Hamas. That's a fallacy. We'll come back and talk about that. Later. Judith, a question to you: Do you think that Liz Cheney uh, was or is a profile in courage or a political hacker? What what is she? She's a she's. She's the daughter of, of Dick Cheney, comes out of the, obviously, out of the Bush era. Donald Trump was a frequent critic of how Bush handled the war in Iraq and everything else. And and she's reacting to that. She's one of these never-Trump type people, you know, who kind of held her nose and went along when she thought it was going to be a good thing to do. I mean, this idea that, that people think that Donald Trump is going to be a liability in the midterms, I mean, take a look at what what happens whenever he endorses somebody this is this is the reality the pundits ideas about donald trump and the reality of how people react to him are very different and so i think that um, what about her point what about her point though that n not to say something was wrong on on january 6th is to believe and continue to perpetuate the big lie and the Republican Party has got to decide whether or not they want to perpetuate the big lie or swallow hard and admit that Donald Trump was wrong and then go to the polls and hopefully win it. But they're not they're not going to admit that uh, that Donald Trump was wrong. Well, let me let me respond to that. I mean, uh, what what Liz Cheney refers to as the big lie yeah. is the idea that the election was not on the up and up. We'll put it that way, okay, because I really don't want to get into that. The other big lie is that there was an insurrection on January 6th. Nobody makes an insurrection without guns. 
Nobody makes an insurrection with the help of the police who let them in. And nobody, the, the, the crowd, I would like to correct, I think it was Scott, the crowd that went over to the Capitol were not at Donald Trump's speech because the, the incident in, in the Capitol started while the speech was still going on. Mike, I won't let Michael look yeah, this up. Michael? It, it was an insurrection. It was people violently storming. And by the way, five people died. No, well, that's, more, that's not even who? true. Uh, yeah, who? Who died? Who, uh, who died as a result uh, 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 of this? Two, Besides, two, two cops, and last time no, I checked... Heart, one no. was a heart attack. One was a heart attack, one was a okay. stroke. So yes. would he, so would he have had a heart attack had they not... I don't know that. I don't know that. Am okay. I a doctor? Are you? I no, don't no, know. but I, I know how that about two, the lady? How about the lady who broke a glass? Right, who was trying... And, how about the people who were trying to stop the electors... Uh, votes from being cast. This was an attack on democracy. Frankly, uh, but but I will I will I will say this. I actually don't think Donald Trump is going to be that much of a factor in the 2022 elections. He will be in terms of who he supports in primaries for Republicans, but the world has moved on. And you know, th- this is 16 months from now. He you is going to be he's going you, to be old news. You are hoping he's, the world has okay. moved on. It hasn't. Well, he's hoping for old news. Okay. Well, no, I, well, I, I, uh, so when the when, when the history of the 2020 election is written, Donald Trump is not going to be in the lead paragraph in your view. Oh, he will be, but not in the 2022. Okay. Are you okay. 2020 or 2022? 2022. No. I'm Bruce no. Dumont back shortly from Evanston, Illinois. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the voices for recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24 hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Fourteen clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back in Evanston, Illinois. This is the site of Beyond the Beltway each and every Sunday night on the Smart Talk Radio Network. And we've got four Smarties, Smarty Pants around the table this evening. And we're going to take a moment and let them introduce themselves. And we're going to begin with our, those who are joining us via Zoom. And let's uh, go to an old friend of this program, Chris Roebling. Chris, uh, welcome back. It's been a while since you have been here. But for those that don't know your, your bio uh, as intricately as I do, or intimately as I do, Tell us everybody, uh, tell everybody about yourself. Well, uh, thank you very much, Bruce. It's always a privilege to be on the program. Yes, it I is. I really appreciate this uh, opportunity <laughs> as well. Uh, I got involved in politics very early in the Nutria Democratic Organization when I was about seven or eight years old, caring literature for Democrats for Lynn Williams. That's a name from the past for folks who remember Illinois politics. But uh, ended up becoming a Republican in college and uh, worked on Capitol Hill, worked in a lot of campaigns eventually returned home to Chicago from D.C. and um, ran the Cook County Republican Party with Don Totten, a great political strategist, uh, and uh, 
was privileged to help a bunch of different candidates in a bunch of different races mm-hmm. and uh, also to be on your show. And you've been a commentator. Now, also, I've introduced you in the past, uh, and you've never backed away from it. Uh, you have spent time working for the CIA. Uh, can you tell us anything about the sort of things you did for them? No. You're, okay. <laughs> You're too young for the grassy knoll. I will, I will acknowledge that. Let's go to Scott Hibbard. Scott, go ahead. Thanks, Bruce. Nice to see you again. Yeah, so um, I, too, uh, lived and worked in Washington, D.C. for about 20 years. I uh, spent seven of that on Capitol Hill, another five at a federal agency, and ended up doing my doctorate out there in, um, in Baltimore. Uh, I... Um, uh, I've been teaching at DePaul University for 15 years, and I teach uh, international relations, American foreign policy, Mideast politics, and uh, religion and politics, among other issues. Okay. And we will get, obviously, to uh, what's happening in the Middle East before the program unfolds this evening. Let's go to Judith Sherwin. Hi. Um, good evening, Bruce. Thanks a lot for having me on. I always always enjoy being on. Um, I am uh, an attorney in Chicago. I'd like to also uh, take this opportunity to say I'm a proud graduate of the John Marshall Law School, uh, which perhaps we can talk about a little bit. Did you hear about him? Yeah, I heard about him. Okay, we'll talk about it. We should talk about that. And um, and I I also uh, teach uh, First Amendment uh, courses in freedom of religion uh, and ethics uh, in the law school at Loyola University. So thanks for having me on. Michael Lieber, it's been a while since we've had you back in the studio, but it's nice to have you back. I think it's been since before COVID. Yes. Since, uh, the old world. So it's great to be BC. back. BC. Before COVID. BC. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. I've been uh, politically active and politically aware since uh, I was probably wearing diapers. Grew up in a very political family. Uh, I uh, worked on uh, one of the presidential primary campaigns this year. Uh, doing a whole bunch of different things. Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg. Went to a ball game with him. Uh, That's right. Went to a football game. Did a whole bunch of other things. Had a hot dog with him. Uh, I can't remember. Well, yeah, pretzel. Probably. A pretzel, Pretzel, I think. (laughs) Uh, Maybe some peanuts. Broke bread. Uh, But uh, uh, that was an exciting experience. Um, uh, And uh, so I've just always been very politically active and aware and uh, an occasional pundit like with you. And my day job is, like Judith, uh, I'm a lawyer. I have my own firm in Chicago, Libra Law Group. We do a wide range of things. Okay. Let me ask a follow-up, because in the primary, you were a very strong supporter of Pete Buttigieg, uh, and then obviously switched over to Joe Biden when he got the nomination. Is there anything, look back to the time when you had reservations about Joe Biden and you were for Pete Buttigieg. Is there anything that you had reservations for about Biden that have come true that you would be willing to candidly share with us? Well, I, I mean, my biggest reservation with Biden during the primary is that I didn't think he could win. And that obviously didn't come true because he did. My thinking during the primary was most of the time when somebody is running a second or third time for president, um, if they win the nomination – they lose the general. So that was my biggest concern. My other smaller concern was, and, you know, it's a legitimate concern, is that Biden had lost a step. And and he has. He's he's slower. You know, he you know, he still has some pep in his step. Um, I, I think the, the 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 claims that he's somehow like not running the show, um, that he's, you know, slipping into dementia are just categorically wrong. Uh, I think his presidency were what, four months in uh, has been a 
pretty much unqualified success. The economy is good. Uh, we're not getting ourselves into wars. Uh, people are getting back to work. The country has been reopening. And more than anything, he's handled COVID pretty much perfectly with the rollout of the vaccine. Scott Hibbert, I don't know where you were in the Democratic primary because it's been that long since you've been on the air with us. But um, four months in, uh, what's your assessment of President Biden? Uh, uh, let, let's start on the on the on the the foreign affairs side. Yeah. Well. I, well. First of all, I was a big Sherrod Brown fan. Uh, okay. I, I thought, and I always thought Sherrod Brown and Kamala Harris would be the like, the unstoppable team. Mm-hmm. Ohio, California, and uh, and my hesitation about Joe Biden is, um, you know, Sherrod Brown kind of inhabited the same lane as Joe Biden, once Joe Biden mm-hmm. throws his hat in the ring, he sucks up all the money that, you know, that would have gone to Sherrod Brown. So I was a little disappointed that, um, that, you know, Brown was uh, stepping out, was being pushed out, if you will, even though he never really threw his hat in the ring, but right. you could tell he was testing the waters. And, uh, but the interesting bit is, um, uh, I, you know, I, I didn't, and I didn't think that um, Biden could actually, uh, you know, um, actually win the primary. I thought it was going to be very divisive. And it was, I was surprised at how quickly mm-hmm. he rallied around. Um, or he rallied support around him. Um, in terms of the uh, for, or in terms of his, um, you know, policy initiatives, I think, you know, the big issue, of course, is COVID. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I never really understood why the Trump administration didn't take COVID more seriously, because you can't open up the economy until you get the, you know, until you get the virus under control. And and this is basically what the on the know, what, on, um, on the foreign affairs side, just just look yeah. at his actions in the last, let's say, fourteen days. Yeah. What assessment would you have about? Uh, what he did? I mean, what, what was he saying to Bibi Netanyahu that made uh, Bibi Netanyahu uh, agree to a ceasefire? Yeah. And what was well, he I mean, saying uh, for, to the other side? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the White, House, White House was very much involved in behind the scenes uh, negotiations. And, you know, he, um, you know, he's, you know, Biden is a longtime supporter of Israel. He's not going to, you know, do the um, uh, do a lot of grandstanding on it, but he will do the behind the scenes diplomacy, you know, diplomatic work, which I think is ultimately going to be more effective with, uh, with, you know, with Israel. And, um, you know, I, I think there are reasons why both Hamas and the Netanyahu government wanted to bring an end to the war or this brief conflict. It's not, no, no way is resolved, but, um, but, you know, it served everyone's interest. And I thought, you know, the Biden administration acquitted themselves well. I think they've got, you know, they have issues within their own party to, to grapple with going forward. And I think you know, the larger issues that you know, they're, they're focusing on, uh, Russia and China. And this is, you know, really where the Biden administration's focus wants to be. And all the stuff in the Middle East is kind of pulling them back into, uh, you know, into the Middle Chris East. Chris Roblin, you're shaking I, your I head just, as I just Scott couldn't, talks. I couldn't disagree with Professor more <laughs> strenuously. I mean, the, to, to, uh, to sort of uh, entice Iran back into a failed agreement is to execute a Chinese objective with respect to the Middle East, which is to separate the Middle East or, or to, to work desperately hard to separate the Middle East into two camps, the sort of the, the for lack of a better term, the, the Saudi camp and the Iran camp. That's not exactly right, but it works for now. And then number two, if we were serious about Russia, we would be stopping the pipeline that they're trying to um, uh, open. Uh, and, you know, at, at least Trump and the Senate with Democrats and Republicans together stopped the pipeline during the Trump administration. Now, Biden is bizarrely ambiguous about the pipeline uh, that'll bring natural gas from Russia and make Western Europe more dependent on uh, uh, Russia for natural gas. And and with respect to China, I think the professor is wrong because the entire tone of the relationship with China 
you know, they're they're covering up the uh, the uh, uh, CDC and NIH relations with the Wuhan Institute. They are actively, in my opinion, dissembling about the origin of this thing. They are also they they have failed to enunciate a post-Trump China policy that says to China, we, the United States, are going to remain as number one in the world, and you are going to have a sphere of influence over there in China, and it's not going to interrupt the sea lanes of communication in the South China Sea. I mean, there, there is zero leadership from the Biden administration about the real issues that are going on in the world right now. And what they do instead is talk about, you know, wish fulfillment, like, you know, the 93rd Congress on climate change or something like this. Scott, what's your reaction to yeah, that? Yeah, so I totally disagree with all that. I mean, the one thing, uh, you know, one of the first things Trump did was to pull out of the um, uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Huge disaster. It was as much of a political uh, engagement as an economic engagement. So part of what the Trump or the Biden administration is doing is rebuilding our ties to these countries that, you know, felt very much abandoned by the Trump administration. Second of all, in terms of, um, of uh, you know, uh, Iran, Iran is closer to a nuclear weapon today than they were when uh, Barack Obama left office. Of course, and they've they've restarted the uh, the centrifuges. They're re, you know, redeveloping their program, and there really has always been only two choices: either they get a uh, nuclear weapon, or you have war. And if you don't like either of those options, you have to negotiate. And I think what the Biden administration, See, the Biden I, administration I, is trying to do is trying to I, bring, I, I, get I back to the negotiating any, table. I, I'll just say real quick: I like Reagan on. The Soviet Union, which was a much more considerable force in the world than Iran, is that we win, they lose. And that's where Trump was. The real Trump policy towards Iran was to bring the malocracy and its hard guy thug enforcers and the Quds force and the, uh, the defense establishment in Iran. And that's all it is. I mean, the, Moloch, the mullahs are making money off the current deal and the military is their heat. And, and, they are, and they are stronger said, today what Trump than, the, did than the day that Barack Obama left office. to their knees. They were close to imploding. And that's the best policy for the West and for the United they, States. They're, they're, they're some, they are folks, more entrenched today than they Folks, were we have to break. We've got a commercial break coming up. I'm Bruce Dumont, 1-800-723-8029. From coast to coast and border to border, this is Beyond the Beltway. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Christian Watt back, and we continue with our guests. Uh, I want to follow up on something we, we talked uh, a great deal about last week, and I think we've got a good uh, foursome here to talk about this. I'm going to start with you, Mike Lieber. What, what, what should the United States do 
insofar as the the assaults on our cyber system, on our cyber systems, so that when we feel that that Russia has been behind something, what can we really do to uh, to slap their hand in such a way that they won't do it again? It's a great question, and I'm going to say I don't know. That's that's the honest answer because I'm sure our folks at the you know at some of these acronyms that I haven't even heard of mm-hmm. probably have the capability of shutting down all sorts of systems in Russia if they want. Whether it's pipelines, whether it's the electrical grid, whether it's banking, they probably have the ability to at least foul things up pretty badly. The question is, if we do that. What kind of capability? I mean, you saw what happened with a pipeline that was just a, a, a you know, a, a, a hackers who yeah. were holding it for ransom and how much that affected our country. So, you know, we need to be strong, but I almost want to say we can't be too strong because there are going to be consequences. I don't know that our cyber system is hardened enough that we could prevent a, a counterattack. Or if we are very successful, we won't even know about it, and we shouldn't know about it. We shouldn't, right? I mean, there have Judy. been there have been really successful ones, yeah. like the Stuxnet of the you know Iranians uh, uh, centrifuges and stuff like that, mm-hmm. where you know that's different because they didn't have the capability of coming back and harming us. Uh, so, so you've got to pick your battles, Judy. What about it? What, well, I I think you can't you can't uh, be afraid to pick. To pick this particular, I don't know that you would want to retaliate for what happened with the pipeline over the last couple of weeks. But do you I, agree with the way the president has handled this? I mean, he is he has spoken softly, and I, he he called Putin a killer a couple of months ago. But in this particular case, he basically said that he didn't think that uh, Putin's fingerprints were on this. And uh, do you agree with that assessment, or well, is that just a public all, assessment? I think that's a public assessment. I mean, it's it's like. It's like when people said, oh, gee, really, Donald Trump is too nice to Putin. I, I'm sure that um, Biden does see Putin or Putin's government's fingerprints on this. Um, I mean, there is a cyber command uh, that was created several years ago, and they do have that kind of capability. And and to do whatever the retaliation might be right away is probably not something that would be a pretty good idea. But I think that at some point, some system in Russia is going to be shut down because if we don't do anything, they're just going to do it again. And they're going to it's going to get worse. You know, at some point you have to stop somebody and make them realize there is a downside for what they're doing. And 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 our system, our system has certain vulnerabilities. And and I you can't just sit there and say, I'm sorry, we're we're afraid that they're really going to shut all the traffic lights. Mike and then Scott. Yeah, just very quickly. I mean, I I agree. We've got to take some counteraction. We just have to be careful. It can't be so big that it's going to have something that's even worse, and, and it just spirals out. And of control. it can't be necessarily Scott, next week. A question right. to you: uh, If we were to retaliate against uh, Russia uh, or some other entity that may be involved, if it isn't Russia, uh, if we retaliate, should it be an obvious retaliation, or does this have to be, uh, uh, you know, very, very deep, and our fingerprints have to be off it? Well, I guess I guess the larger issue is, you know, we, first of all, we do need to harden our um, our defenses. We need to invest in the cybersecurity, and, and I think the part of the problem is so much of this is privately held. 
So, you know, we have to be working, the federal government has to work with different, you know, different levels of government and different, um, you know, private sector entities. And, and that's, you know, step number one. I think the, the second thing is, is calling people out. Um, you know, Donald Trump famously, uh, you know, denied that there was any kind of Russian hacking involved in anything. I think the uh, intelligence services have pretty clearly pointed the fingers at, um, at groups within, uh, within Russia. Now, getting back to your question, though, what, you know, how do you respond? You know, Mike raises a good point. You know, there is always a danger of escalation. And so you don't want to get into a tit for tat and you certainly don't want it to escalate. So, for, you know, first things first is engage diplomatically and, you know, let them know that we know what they're doing. And if they're doing it again, you know, we're going to you know, burn down their, you know, their energy grid. Um, Chris again, Robley, you know, this oh. is a really you know, dangerous you know, area to tread on if we are similarly vulnerable. And, I think that's kind of where, you know, we're not just, you know, the U.S. is, but where Europe is and, and other, and, you know, our allies. Chris Roebling, your response to the question, and let me broaden it by saying, uh, by paying ransom, uh, is that a reward or does it just, does it just keep people trying to do it again, whether it's individual groups or nations? Ransomware is an evolving threat and it is a, uh, it's, it's a polymorphic threat because it can change as time goes on, even in one set of malware. Uh, and we are as weak as any other society in which folks do not care about endpoints. I'm speaking to you through an endpoint. Endpoint security is almost always the, the way in which these guys get in. And if we're not strong at the endpoint level, and we can be, we can be a lot stronger, I can tell you, I know for a fact that the folks that, the, you know, what, what the government uses for endpoint security and what certain agencies use for endpoint security is not particularly used in private sector, although it, it's available. Um, critical infrastructure, which is to say from enclave to uh, pipeline to server farm, is another area of real strength for us. Um, and I think that the responses, they have to know they'll pay a price. We are at war in the cyber realm today. We have been at war for 15 or 20 years. It ought to be declared and it ought to be made transparent to regular people so they know what's going on because we are under hundreds, if not thousands of attacks on a daily basis from some state actors and from some non-state actors and the non-state actors can be any range of just some Bulgarians who have gotten together to make some money, all the way up to folks who are working for state actors. Okay, on that note, we do have to pause. Uh, Chris Roebling and Scott Hibbard and Judith Sherwin and Michael Lieber are joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway. I'm back with another full hour with these great guests. Don't go away. You're listening to Beyond the Beltway live on the Smart Talk Radio Network. For some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it. Seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation. It's your news, your nation. 
Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Booster Mutt back on hour number two of Beyond the Beltway, wherever you're listening from coast to coast and border to border. Nice to have you with us. 1-800-723-8289. We are live on Facebook. We are live on YouTube. If you've not seen the visual portion of this program, that's where you can find it. And again, uh, if you go to our website, beyondthebeltway.com, you can see it, you can hear it. You can hear it live. You can hear it on delay. You can hear it a year from now. Uh, Once it's up there, it's up there for a long time. We've got great guests this evening. Judith Sherwin and Michael Lieber are joining me in studio. And uh, Chris Roebling and Scott Hibbard are joining us uh, via Zoom this evening. And uh, uh, I'm going to switch gears and talk about something that I don't believe in the the 40-year history of this program. (laughs) I don't think we've ever spoken about it. Or if we have, maybe it was just, uh, you know, a segment, one segment. I want to talk about uh, UFOs because next week there is going to be a a government report about uh, UFO unidentified flying objects and uh, a lot of uh, effort by a lot of major agencies have gone into it, uh, allegedly, and they are going to have a report to Congress, and I would suggest that maybe later this week uh, there's going to be maybe some big news that comes out of it or at least some uh, new information. And it will move uh, UFOs from, uh, you know, the the, 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 the tin hat uh, discussions uh, to something that maybe is uh, potentially real. 
And I want to just begin by by getting a sense. Uh, I'm going to start with you, uh, Michael. Um, where do you generally have? Where have you generally come down on UFOs? And uh, is this potentially something uh, uh, important? Well, I think it's really interesting. I don't consider myself a UFO. Uh, expert. First of all, let's remember that UFO doesn't necessarily mean from out of space. Right. It could be some Russian or Chinese or who knows super jet, uh, but it could be from out That's of space. That's bad too. That, that, that is bad. <laughs> that and we can, be a good we, idea. we can get to that in the next segment. But, you know, in terms of UFO, just in terms of the notion that there are, you know, little green aliens in Area 51 that are being probed and so forth, I find it pretty hard to believe simply because the notion of some vast government conspiracy being able to be kept. Um, I just generally don't believe in that, in- including the fact that I think if our former president knew about that, he probably would have said something just like, you know, with the, the, the conspiracies with the Kennedy assassination, you know, it would have taken 10 or 20 or 30 people. And at some point, one of them would have written a book and made a million dollars. So I don't know. I think it's going to be really interesting. It, we live in a huge universe uh, the notion that there are no other intelligent life forms in this vast universe, I think, is pretty remote. Uh, uh, so uh, it'll be interesting to see. Chris Roebling, you mentioned in the first hour that uh, once upon a time you worked for the CIA. You wouldn't tell me what you did. I'm not going to probe that. But again, with within those within the field of intelligence that you may know, you may have met in your in your political career. Um, where where does the where does the serious discussion of uh, UFOs fall? Are, are there are there people that really believe it that have some substance, or is it still somewhat of a, of a crackpot uh, idea? I think Mike has put his finger on it. You know, a couple of summers ago, it might be two, might be three, we had two incidents of U.S. Navy ships in the South China Sea and towards Singapore being rammed by commercial vessels. I don't know if you remember that. Both the captains were cashiered and uh, there were inquiries. I think the pre- prevailing view of what happened then was spoofing. And that is uh, a, a, an outside force spoofed the GPS that was directing the two commercial vessels so that it would, so that those vessels would run into American ships. It hasn't happened since. I think there's a lot of reason for that. So I think what we have to really be worried about are UFOs from our own you know, realm as far as UFOs from outer space, I, you know, I think that the astronomers and uh, the physical chemists who read all the spectrography are going to figure out when those might show up. I really don't know anything about that. Scott Hibbert, your reaction? I look forward to the report. Okay. <laughs> in, 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 in all I think in, in just in terms of like good governance, you know, transparency is always a good thing. And one of the reasons why you have conspiracy theories is because there's a, a perception of lack of transparency. And, um, you know, in my work, I've, uh, I've had students that have all kinds of conspiracies about uh, the 9-11, um, events of 9-11 or what happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and my, my assumption is always that if, you know, the more information out there, the better. You're going to you know, debunk conspiracy theories by, by, you know, sharing whatever information you have. So, um, you know, to the extent that um, there are you know, genuine serious inquiries into UFOs, um, making that available, I think, is, is a good thing. Does anyone know if there's any other nation in the world that is looking at this in a serious manner? Anybody? No idea. We don't know. We don't know. I would well, assume the Soviet Union would have been all over well, this. We, we, they, yeah. 
we've got a huge, a, a much larger footprint of space involved nations today right. than we right. did 40 years ago. I mean, you've, right. you've got Indian astronauts, you've got Japanese astronauts, you've got Russian astronauts, Chinese, you know, and, and you know, we're pushing back many frontiers in space. So I think folks are um, very tuned into what's happening in space. I think that with respect to these sort of earth originating UFOs, mm -hmm. uh, there are obviously folks out there who know more than we do. Judith? Yeah, I, I would agree with, uh, with Chris. There are folks out there who know a lot more than we do. And I, I think that, that the focus suddenly on UFOs really is, is a sort of deflected focus on the fact that um, we, we've had a certain ascendancy in space, uh, which we worked very hard to get uh, after the first shockwave of, of the Sputnik uh, back in the, in the 50s going up. And to some degree, that has been dissipated. Uh, the Chinese just landed something on Mars. Uh, they sent back pictures. Um, we, are no, we are no longer alone in space. Forget about other planets the way we thought we were up until a few years ago. And I think that this focus on UFOs and whether or not we as a species, species are alone in the universe is now starting to in some way deflect to the fact that we may be losing our ground in space, and I don't think we want to do that. We were also worried, uh, at least many people were worried, and the, me and the news media was, was exploring that, that concern uh, just a couple of weeks ago when the, 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 uh, the Chinese debris from one of their rockets right. Right. No one knew where it was going to hit, and uh, particularly you know, God the forbid, Chinese, it, it, they had yeah, no yeah, idea. Yeah. And, uh, but if it would have hit in the middle of Cleveland or, or some place like that, there could have been significant loss of I life. I think we're all we're all lucky. It, it landed, I believe, in the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. But but um, I mean, that's an issue though. That actually, every time they send up a rocket and the rocket doesn't come down, mm -hmm. like the SpaceX rockets are coming down, um, the that's always a concern. Because you never really know where the space debris is going to go, and and I I, uh, I I've heard a lot about this uh, when my my son got his PhD at uh, Georgia Tech. He met a number of astronauts, and his master's was about this issue of asteroid deflection and all the junk that's that's yeah. floating around yes, up right, there. Yeah, right. That is a major concern, and the astronauts, if you talk to them about it, will tell you that they are worried about that all the time. Hmm. And when we come back, we'll talk more about it and find out whether anybody out there in Radioland uh, is worried about the UFOs. And uh, <laughs> are you uh, chomping at the bit to read the report when it comes out? 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border and around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. Every Sunday night, I'm Bruce Dumont. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one -on -one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. 
climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. Another segment of Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Let's go to David. He has been standing by very patiently in the beautiful city of Spokane, Washington. Go ahead, David. Hey there, Bruce. Uh, Well, not uh, my intended point of uh, talk, but I actually uh, did did have a visual sighting of an unidentified object, I guess, while a pilot in the Marine Corps. But uh, the uh, main thing I was calling to talk about was this uh, Biden interaction, one of your uh, guests was talking about how great he thought Biden was doing. Yes. And I just have to say, um, on quite a few issues, whether it's what, what another guest talked about, uh, him waiving sanctions that have, were keeping the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from you know, being a win for Russia, mm-hmm. killing the XL pipeline, another win for Russia. Uh, I mean, the colonial pipeline getting shut down by Russia. He, he's, he's helping Russia you know, everywhere you look. And people talk about Trump being all about Russia. I mean, one month after Biden was in office, he sent aid to Palestine, and now we've got 4,000 rockets going into Iran. Now, was that money probably the sole focus of it? Probably not. Maybe partially, maybe. But there also might have been $100 billion that came from the Obama-Biden administration that also was part of that 4,000 rockets being launched. He says he's on Israel's side, but then if you're going to negotiate with Iran— Israel has already said multiple times, as well as other countries in that region, that the deals with Iran are bad for Israel. They don't like these, these stupid deals we're making with Iran, especially because they didn't have good validation processes. When you, when, when you make a deal where you have to get authorization to go to anywhere they choose to let you see, that's not a, that, that's not a real deal that you're able to monitor their, their nuclear progress. Uh, unless you can go anywhere you want to go, you're not able to adequately okay. monitor them. David, stand, I mean, by, stand, stand by for a second. You've, you've given a, quite a bit to think about. I want to uh, move to uh, Scott Hibbard uh, from DePaul University, who joins us via Zoom this evening. And, uh, Scott, I want you to speak to one element of what David has, has to say, and that is the financial support that the U.S. government and Congress has provided uh, the Palestinians, and to what extent uh, has that money perhaps been used uh, to wage a war against uh, Israel? Uh, so first and foremost, uh, Israel is the largest beneficiary of American aid. We give them about $3.8 billion a year mm-hmm. in military um, equipment and finance, financial benefits and, and whatnot. And there's only 9 million Israelis, so it's about basically $500 per Israeli. The Palestinians um, historically received about $200 million, not four hundred, not not more, not, not more than that, 200 million, the vast majority of which goes to the Palestinian Authority to facilitate economic development um, and whatnot. We've not been giving money to Hamas, which is the one which is the, controls Gaza and is, which has been shooting the rockets. The money goes to the, uh, to, uh, the UN or UN food program or to the Palestinian Authority. Um, so there's just, so that-, that Where does, where does so, Hamas so none, get way, its None money. of the zero US dollars went into okay. uh, paying for those rockets. That that um, but, cannot be asserted, Scott. You cannot say that. Exactly. Any Absolutely kind of true. But, but like, I can tell you for certainty that, that we definitely help pay for the, uh, for say, the, the wait, military. Hold on, guys, folks, I know you all want, just a second, I know you all want to talk. I'm going to let you all talk, 
but you have to talk one at a time. So let me call on you, Chris Roebling, to you, and then Judith's got a comment, and then back to Scott. Go ahead. The Obama administration freed up billions and billions of dollars for the Iranians. The Iranians support Hamas. And even with respect to the 200 million, which I think you're using a very, very narrowly designed definition of what's going from the United States to the Palestinians, um, you have got the fungibility of capital all across these entities. So when we are giving more than, I think, 150 or $200 billion to Iran, Iran in turn is supporting Hamas in the accumulation of war material for you to say on this show to all of Bruce's listeners, we didn't pay for any of that is fatuous nonsense. We may well have paid for a, a lot more of that than anybody in this range right. of this program. Let's let Scott, exactly. let's let Scott respond. First of all, Scott. we did not give Iran anything. We unfroze money that was theirs in accounts that we controlled. So that's, you know, so I, that, that's, that's, that's ridiculous. This is more in, in the area. fatuous area. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Continue, Scott, and then we're going to go to Judith. Well, and again, you know, going back to the Iranian nuclear deal, you know, there, there were very robust sanctions. We followed the Reagan narrative, trust but verify. The IAEA had full um, inspection rights of all of the nuclear uh, facilities in Iran. That's clear. I don't know where you're getting your information. You know, do your homework. And, um, you know, and again, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what part of the reason why we, we um, engaged in the diplomatic you know, negotiations with uh, or diplomatic engagement with Iran was the other alternatives were not optimal. I mean, our, uh, you know, going, doing nothing would mean that they would end up having a nuclear weapon, if not this year, the next year or the Scott, year. Scott, let me interrupt doing you. Doing nothing now. is unacceptable. Let me go. And to, the alternative one, one, is one, one, one second. Let, let, one, one second. I want to go to Judith, and then uh, I'm going to get Michael involved, and we'll continue the discussion. But, Judith, you want to button this yes, conversation Yes, I do. Up. Well, first of all, um, I, I keep hearing that they either have to get a nuclear weapon or there's going to be a war. That's not the only two alternatives, which should be rather obvious over what's happened in the last four years. The, the fact that they have moved ahead with getting a nuclear weapon is, is, uh, is, is a byproduct of the treaty that was entered into with the Obama administration. It is exactly what Netanyahu pointed out was going to happen. It is exactly what most of the security people in Israel pointed out was going to happen. The time has gone by. They have enriched uranium they have done it outside of the parameters of the treaty. They have not allowed inspections. If, if I have a right to inspect and, and the guy I'm inspecting tells me where I can inspect and when I can inspect, and he's trying yeah. to do something. Now, let me finish. You know, that's not a great right of inspection. If you're going to have a right of inspection for something as serious as somebody trying to enrich uranium to make a nuclear weapon, that should be without notice, and that should be any place where they are doing this stuff. And if you can't make that kind of, of agreement a reality, then you shouldn't make it, all right? Okay. It, because that's not the alternative. Everything uh, – right. well, let me just finish. Right, finish all, of the, all of the foreign policy discussions that we have tonight, and, and we had it about the cybersecurity, everything is, well, we either do this and make some sort of agreement or there's going to be a war. That's not true. There's a lot of place between certain agreements that are made – 
and ending up in a war. Scott Hibbert, let me I, ask I you. Respond to that. Uh, yeah, you there is the reason that, but then I want, called, I want to ask you, know, you another question. Go ahead. Diplomatic engagement, and this there is what the Obama administration did. They, they engaged in coercive diplomacy. <laughs> they ramped up the sanctions yeah, yeah. on Iran to get them to the negotiating table, and they negotiated a deal to start dismantling. I mean, not, not just that's false. Slow that down. That's false. false. They didn't dismantle I mean, look, anything. Look, 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 Bruce, right, look, look one second. One second. Just one second. Talk about doing your homework, Scott. And then they did not Michael. negotiate a deal to dismantle. They negotiated a deal to push off until the end of the ninth year or the 11th year, whichever one it was. That was the deal. The deal was not to dismantle the Iranian uh, 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 nuclear program. And even they, if the deal well, they, was no, they to were. They were. There was, they, they, had, they had to dismantle uh, their capacity to use That is That is true. Do your homework. A was not agreed to, and B was not done. All right. Michael Lieber. Spoiler alert for everybody who is a panelist tonight and everybody across the country and around the world who's listening. At some point, whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, Iran is going to have a nuclear weapon. And you know what? And you know, wait, hold on. And so is Saudi Arabia. Just as North, just, just, hold on, let me finish. Just as North Korea has, just as the United States and the Soviet Union did. And everybody knows that there's mutual assured destruction and we can spend all this time talking about it, but people are going to get the bombs and they're never going to use them. Well, first of all, the point of mutually assured destruction, you expect the Iranian government that shouts death to America and wants to destroy the state of Israel have not been very shy. You know, when people tell you who they are, you should listen well, to absolutely. them. Absolutely. Look at North Korea has had nuclear weapons for, what, 20 years? They're crazier than the Iranians. They I don't haven't know used that them that's yet. true. They, I don't know because that that's you know true. what? Because they know what will happen. I mean, the Iranians t- don't care what will happen. If they, you, if you they, think the North Koreans care more? I Come think on, the Iranians care more about dropping, would, would like to drop a bomb on Israel and some of their other enemies in the Middle East. You do know and that they don't that care would, what happens because it, it will also happen to them. You but do realize they don't it would care. kill a ton of Palestinians. Uh, and you do realize that the wind blows west Michael, toward the West Bank. They don't care i'm trying to get that across to you but i'm trying to get to you treaty was a chimera just to put things off and pretend they were doing something they did nothing folks let me ask this question i'm going to ask you chris roebling first and then scott hibbert give me short answers if you will where does hamas get its money chris roebling from iran right Mainly from and the international community and Saudi Arabia and, Ca- and Persian Gulf and Qatar. No, no, There's their Sunni power. They no, get money. No, from I'm Persian sorry. I, hold on. Hold on. Saudi and the Gulf have gone from this much funding 25 years ago to this much funding right. today. That's right. This is my area, Scott. I know what I'm talking about. They are not getting the same amount of support. Not not from the governments, but they're still permissive fundraising environment within the civil society. It is get, nothing get, compared to what's this. coming from Iran. Right. It is nothing what they're compared to what they're doing with the fungibility of international community funding that gets through the UN into the PA and into That's Hamas. Right. That's right. We've got a pause. There's still a lot of money We've got a pause. Ball, so. We will be back. We've got two more segments to go. I'm Bruce Dumont. 1-800-723-8029. Thanks very much, uh, David uh, from Spokane. You got your quarter's worth tonight. Back shortly. <laughs> 
Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 14 clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees... It doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. Nice to have you with us. Judith Sherwin is with us this evening, and uh, she has got to be in her bonnet because... She is a graduate of John Marshall Law School, and you may have read that they have been canceled. Judith, tell us uh, what got your back up this week. Yeah, I um, I am an alumnus of that school, alumna of that school, and I received an email uh, over the weekend that uh, they have changed the name of the law school uh, because they are ashamed of John Marshall. Um, he, they say, is a slave owner. And uh, even though he may have been one of, you know, the great jurists of our country, uh, in many ways a founding father of what the Constitution has come to mean, uh, practically created judicial review. Nobody knew it would work that way. Uh, the Supremacy Clause and a few other things I can think of, um, which I suppose have all fallen into favor or disfavor now. Uh, and they have taken his name out of the law school because um, certain People are offended by the fact that he was a man of his time from Virginia who had a plantation on which there were slaves. Um, I don't know much more about it than that because I really didn't have a chance to look into it after I got the email. But we have reached a place in this country where we are just as ridiculous as the jokes we used to make about the Soviet Union when they made Lenin a non-person. And they made Stalin a non-person. Um, we are now making our founding fathers non-persons. You know, I don't agree that John Marshall should have had slaves, but he was a man of that time. He was a man of that place. So was Thomas Jefferson and a whole bunch of the other founding fathers. Are we going to cancel them all? Maybe we are. And that's very dangerous. Very dangerous for the country. Uh, you know, in a strange way, this makes me think of a skit on last night's Saturday Night Live, oh, where they were showing a night, uh, supposedly a 1998 rebroadcast yeah. of an episode <laughs> of Hollywood Squares. Yeah. I don't know if you saw it. I saw it. Uh, but some of the guests on Hollywood Squares have now been canceled. Bill Cosby, right. Um, right. Apu from The Simpsons, yeah. a number of right. different people. Right. My feeling is people live in the time that they were. We have to understand that. We should live and learn and live and learn that slavery is wrong and racism is wrong Absolutely. and try to learn and do better than people who didn't have the benefit of the foresight that we have. But I'm not a big fan of cancel culture either. Okay. Scott Hibbert, your response from a college perspective. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in I'm in the same boat. I mean, it's um, 
you know, you, we're bringing today's standards of judgment to, um, you know, to people of a different era. And, um, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan. Chris Roebling. You're muted, Chris. You're muted, Chris. But I think Chris is a big fan of cancel culture. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll, I'll speak for Chris. Chris is a big fan of cancel there culture. A, uh, there is an expression, and when you study uh, philosophy of history, does historicism lead to historicity? That's exactly what's happened to the left. Number three, if you want to know about John Marshall, I really recommend, this is Lynn, not her daughter. This is a heck of a book about John Marshall, Madison, uh, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Monroe. Marshall really got into the heads of Madison and Jefferson and Lincoln, and I'm sorry, Madison, Jefferson, Monroe, and Washington. There's Washington over mm -hmm. there. He was really a part of that, and they really detested him, but they also admired him. And you cannot believe how much these guys argued about what the Constitution meant. And they were all involved, except for Washington directly. They're, the other uh, three were, and Marshall, were writing the Constitution. Ten years later, they couldn't agree on what it meant. Right. Well, I mean, Marbury versus Madison. The Madison is, is, is our friend, President Madison, who tried, to, who tried to ignore a rather clear directive of, of how the Constitution was supposed to work with appointments. And, and John Marshall put him thank in his place. That, thank you for so. that uh, visual uh, uh, depiction for us. Chris. Yeah, I just happened to have it next to me, so I it's thought great. I'd It's great. It's great. It was saves, saves time for our graphics I'll department. I'll go get it. We are going to go to a call. <laughs> Another person has been very patient. Mark is listening to us. Is it Carmel by the sea in California? Mark, Mark are you there? Mark is gone. He must have been taken away by one of those UFOs <laughs> who, be, who we can read about <laughs> next week. Um, one of the other things, obviously, that people have been talking about, which is separating Republicans from Democrats, and that is on the definition of, of what is true infrastructure. And it's one of the congressional battles that's been going on between uh, uh, Joe Biden and, and Democrats in the House and Senate. And I want to give you an opportunity, uh, Mike, to make a point, because it's been a while since you made a political point on this show, uh, <laughs> at least as it relates to Republican Democratic politics. Uh, do, do you agree? I mean, if we were to ask you to raise your hand and, and take an oath, would you agree that the definition of infrastructure that has been uh, perpetuated by House and Senate Democrats, uh, that you could agree with all of the items on that list or most of them? Well, you know, certainly some of them are infrastructure, roads, bridges, airports, the grid, a broadband. Um, now, there are other things like uh, aid for, you know, people who are in their 50s or 60s who have to take care of their uh, elderly parents. Yeah. Uh, it's not infrastructure. But it's necessary, and actually it will be a net positive, I think, for the economy. And it's certainly something that both Democrats and Republicans and independents, those kinds of things that we want. So should the, de should the But should the Democrats then separate out those items, right. put them in a bill called Other Important Necessities of Life, <laughs> and let people vote on that, uh, as opposed to trying to pass off and—, and, and uh, create a new word or a new definition of, of infrastructure. I, I, I'm actually perfectly fine with that because, uh, you know, the, then I, I think it's actually a bad strategy by the Republicans to try to separate it because all of these things pull well with Amer the American public. 
And so what you do by separating it is it gives the Democrats two wins, a win on the infrastructure bill and a win on these other things that more Americans than not want. So, sure, separate Chris, do you it. agree with that, that uh, there's a lot of goodies on that bill that uh, Republicans are upset with now, but there isn't a Republican that's going to reject him if uh, there's such a check in the mail? You know, the, the Democrats are uh, masters of creating must-pass legislation. Must-pass legislation is really the beating heart of the Washington swamp. And must-pass means Christmas tree. So people put everything on there. The infrastructure bill, I mean, we and then Trump and uh, 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 Congress, uh, Pelosi and Trump and uh, Mitch McConnell started spell, spending trillions of dollars, probably ill-advisedly, and that has opened the door to the Democrats spending, I don't know, four or five, they, they want to spend six or eight trillion in this year. Uh, and that, that is going to have horrible consequences. And this started with Trump spending too much then and Trump not wanting to split the difference. So I, I you know, one of these days, the law of gravity is going to apply and we're going to have some economic problems because we have just turned on the printing press and we think that that could be prosperity. The printing press does not equal prosperity. It equals inflation. And so we are going to beggar the middle class that was doing well under Trump for the first time in 25, 30 years and is now going to end up in a stagflation situation because Democrats don't have any policy except expanding government and spending more money. A trillion here, a trillion there. Well, what's a trillion between friends? First of all, I I always consider myself fiscal conservative and it just kills me that you know, the debt is where it is today. And I, I worked in Congress when uh, in when we passed two uh, bills that helped put the, um, the, the Reagan deficits onto a track to balance budget. Um, the first one was uh, led by George Herbert Walker Bush and the second one was by Bill Clinton. Um, that All that aside, one of the things I find fascinating about the infrastructure bill is part of the reason why you're redefining it is it's really, and many people may not want to hear this, but it's an industrial policy bill that it's really trying to, you know, rebuild American manufacturing and rebuild um, or invest in, in areas where, you know, there are, you know, there are prospects for, uh, for, you know, cutting edge technologies and new lines of employment, whether that's in green energy or, you know, building electric cars or whatnot. And that's central to what this is. Now, in order to get that passed, you're going to have to um, you know, redefine the notion of infrastructure. And uh, I can't believe I'm agreeing with Chris, but, um, you know, Washington, I would use the word omnibus bill, right? I mean, this is the way stuff gets done through Congress. Is it gets put together in an omnibus package. There's any number of uh, provisions that are, you know, marshaled through different committees. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's an up or down vote. And, and that's how you get stuff through. And, and, and that's what will happen. So you don't think there's a simple way, Chris Roebling, if, if, uh, if we were to come up with a list of things that are necessities, at least as Michael Lieber has described them, uh, and, and put another name on it, uh, that it would pass, that Republicans would support it, is because they, in essence, would be responding to something that the Democrats did, which is basically rethinking the definition of, of a bill and, 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 yeah, and, and, and repackaging um, it. To give you an idea of the seriousness of the infrastructure package, in the last several days, uh, the states of Arkansas and Tennessee have discovered an actual crack, a full-on crack, in the I-40 bridge right. over the Mississippi River at Memphis. 
Oh, my God. I've driven over that bridge. Right. I've driven over that bridge. I've driven both ways over that bridge. And I can tell you, had they not, God love them, God love them, God love them for finding it. And had they not found it, goodness only knows what would have happened. We need an infrastructure bill. It is a, everything we're living through right now, since the political analysis show, I'll just tell you, everything we're going through right now is because Paul Ryan woke up after Trump won and didn't know who the hell he was and decided to play Hamlet. Right. He should have, Paul Ryan should have put forward the infrastructure bill on the 23rd of January, 2017. So we need, we have needed a comprehensive infrastructure bill. In Obama's $900 billion, there were We got a pause, Chris Roebling, we got a cross. You're about to go into an Obama attack and we'll hear it in a moment. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. Marion Marshall, who's a listener, she sends me a note. She says, oh, my God, my husband's name is John Marshall. So uh, we'll see if... Uh, we don't want to cancel him. He's going to cancel. We don't want to cancel him. We don't want to cancel him. We hope everything is alive and well on the Marshall uh, family domestic (laughs) front. Uh, Scott, here, back to you, because uh, uh, earlier in the broadcast, we did talk about what's going on between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Um, And and I can't tell you how many times in the 40-year history of this program we have commemorated ceasefires in the Middle East. Is this... In reality, is this something that's going to happen just every four to five years? Hopefully not. I think that, I think that, I think the way it's situated, though, that it's likely, and probably more often than that. I mean, you know, we we haven't you know the the underlying issues which gave rise to the conflict mm-hmm. have not gone away, and you know, in some respects, you've got multiple conflicts going on. You've got conflicts within the Palestinian community between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. You got um, a, a divided government within Israel. Um, you have a um, military, continuing milita- military occupation of you know, 5 million Palestinians who live under military Israeli you know, control, West Bank, Jerusalem, and Gaza. And as long as, um, particularly in, in, in the West Bank and, um, and in Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, where you know, this original flashpoint occurred, people are being you know, pushed out of their homes, being pushed out their lands. As long as and there's no recourse, or the recourse to the courts is not seen as as fair. I need um, insofar as you have that, you're going to continue to have tensions. And you know, t- to be honest with you, I, I was always a, a big two state solution fan. I was a big supporter of the Oslo peace process for any number of reasons. Um, I'm not sure that is even viable at this stage. And so I don't know there is a solution. And you know, you've got 200 million, or you know, what? Uh, or sorry. You know, two million Palestinians living basically in an open air prison in Gaza, 
First of all, the the conflict which which began all of this has to do with the historic ownership of some apparently six houses in East Jerusalem. Those those houses were um, owned by Jordan, actually, um, and and they have always been uh, since 1887. They have been uh, they were part of Jordan. But when the Israelis took over in 1967, uh, it was acknowledged that those properties were owned by Jews. They had purchased those properties from the Ottoman Empire going back to 1887. Okay. There are people living in those houses who have not paid rent in 50 years. All right. Um, that's not a very good situation for a landlord. The courts have dealt with this over and over again. And you should understand that the Israeli Supreme Court is very, very liberal in terms of its interpretations and its belief in the rights of the Palestinians and has come down on the Palestinian side on a number of occasions. On this particular occasion, they have not because the rules and the law relating to this property make it very clear that these properties are owned by Jews and that the people who the, the Israeli government has offered to the people living there you can continue to live here. Just pay the rent. They refuse to do that. Okay. In most normal so, societies, there is a remedy for that, and the remedy is not to start shooting rockets. Okay. Scott, right, look, back I, to you, and then I, we're going to go to Chris. Scott? So, um, first of all, you know, some of the families in that Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood um, were displaced from Haifa and Jaffa. Um, that and, doesn't so, make, so? And, and they have no right to return to the, the homes that they were displaced from in 1948. And, um, Nobody and they dis, are, they displaced uh, themselves. Scott, they did not, they were not displaced. It's Scott's, it's Scott's turn. Go ahead. <laughs> 1948, they weren't displaced. No, they displaced themselves, but you go ahead. Okay. So they, okay. So they were forced out of, uh, out of their homes and they, and they fled to, they lived in refugee camps in, in Jordan and Jordan gave them the properties and, um, that they then controlled. In, uh, in this area of, of East Jerusalem. Um, when in 1967, after East Jerusalem was annexed, it, it threw the, the, you know, the, the question of- In 1967, when Jerusalem was- You're interrupting. And there, it's and not Scott, clear. I think that's the point. He's, he's, I want to bring this- making up stuff. Well, well, you know, here, right. Judith, there are you're people that are clear. home saying you're making Hamas up stuff. So I'm trying to get a discussion. Just one second, Chris, because I've got just a few minutes left and I want to switch gears, but focus on the same issue. And I want to start with Michael. Do you acknowledge that the growing support for Palestine in Congress is creating or potentially can create a problem for the Democratic members of Congress because things are more split? They seem to be a little more even in the discussion along Capitol Hill because of the squad primarily. They get the ear of the president. They certainly get the ear of, uh, uh, of, of the media. And outside my house, I mean, I, I, for two nights in a row, I've had, uh, you know, several thousand people marching, and they're marching in major cities all over the world. 
the answer is the Democrats, there's not some burgeoning pro-Palestinian uh, part of the Democratic Party. It's three or four or five people in Congress who aren't powerful, who don't, you know, head up committees. And unfortunately, but who, re- but who represent congressional districts where where pro uh, Palestinian positions are very popular. Right. They wouldn't have gotten right. elected with right. anything less than that. Right. But there's still one. You know, they're four percent of the Democratic members in Congress. The uh, the unfortunate thing I was just going to say is, you know, the Gaza thing. It's wash, rinse, repeat. I don't know that anything's going to change anytime soon. Got to go. Thanks for all. See you next week. Bye bye. It's not just. We're done. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope. Our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org.
Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.